Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today... We're not only going to listen, we're going to follow along instructions from our special guest, Yogi Aaron. Thank you so much for being on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Len. So wh- where, are you, where are you physically located? I'm looking at this background. <laughs> I'm in Costa Rica. Um, nice. I have a yoga retreat here on the Osa Peninsula, which is in the south part of Costa Rica. And yeah, that's where I am breathing in the sea air right now. So, so is that near like rainforest or what, where, where is it at? Like, uh, physically it's, it's, what's the type of climate there? It's near, it's near the water, right? And it's uh, you have sort of a tropical type of climate there rains yeah. here and there. Definitely. Yeah. We're very close to the equator. Um, you know, and we're just above Panama. So literally, we're just above the equator. It's a very tropical, you know, humid uh, climate. My skin always looks the best here because <laughs> of the humidity. Yeah, no, you definitely <laughs> definitely have a glow. Definitely. So so I, I want to find out about you. I've been, I was trying to do some research and stuff, but I figured uh, there was some stuff that I found. Some I didn't, but this is an opportunity to ask. Uh, so where did you grow up and what was like sort of your childhood like? Um, that's a good question. You wouldn't have found that unless you read my first book, Autobiography of a Naked Yogi, um, that I, this is the only place I really talk about my childhood. Um, but I grew up in, uh, Canada, Victoria, Canada. Um, people ask me where I'm originally from. I usually say Vancouver, Canada, yeah. um, for two reasons. That's where I've spent a lot of my life, a lot of my youth. And that's also where my heart is, um, always in Vancouver. So I grew up in Victoria, uh, Canada. And uh, brothers, sisters, or I, I have two sisters. <laughs> older, younger. One is older, and one is younger. And my younger sister, I just adore her. Um, although I always call her my little sister. I think she's about forty-nine now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're you're the middle child. I am the middle child. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and your parents were together or divorced or? My parents, um, <laughs> one of the things I talk about in my, my, my bio- autobiography is that my childhood kind of had this kind of split screen. It's probably like a lot of people's childhood did 
where I had this like on one side, it was like, you know, the Waltons, you know, yeah. I, I this very fond memory of us going Christmas caroling and um, at, at Christmas, obviously. And, but then on the flip side of that, um, my parents got divorced when I was 10 years old and that changed the trajectory a lot in my life at that time for a lot of reasons. Did you, did, did you uh, live like with your mom or dad was a split uh, custody? How was that all set up? No, my, my father told my mother that um, he wanted custody of us and he would fight her to the last penny for custody. And they both know, knew who had the last penny. So my mother surrendered and um, which was also interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into it. So I, I'm divorced and I have uh, my, my daughter's going to be 18 in January. So I yeah. kind of have a little bit of a firsthand account. My parents were together uh, or are still together for 52 years. Now I'm not sure they should have been together for all that long. And maybe it would have been better off if they weren't together, but that's a whole uh, separate story. So I kind of understand some of the pitfalls of divorce, uh, but you know, not from a child standpoint, I always try to talk to my daughter about that. But mm-hmm. I'm sure it affected you in, in many different ways, um, especially knowing what you just said. You know, it wasn't voluntarily like, you know, say, hey, I, w- I want to live with dad or I want to live with mom. I don't think you were given a choice. You were living with dad. And how, how was that relationship with your dad? And then, uh, you know, ongoing with your mom, too. It was hard. I mean, the relationship I had with, so my mother, my dad literally pulled my sister and I, especially me, away from my mother, um, almost kicking and screaming. And um, I I mean, I was very close to my mother. My mother and I always had like a strong heart bond. And so when my father took us away, it was, it was devastating and took me a long time to kind of reconcile my own inner feelings around that. Mm-hmm. But my father also not only pulled us away, we weren't even in the same city. We were, you know, um, I think 2000 miles away. Oh. So it wasn't like, and this is back in 1986. So there wasn't like all of these flights, you know, and it wasn't just an easy hop, skip and a jump to get to see my mother. And then to add to the equation, my, my father was um, uh, was an interesting man who decided that if my mother wanted to see us, she had to pay for us to pay for us to come. And my my mother was like, "Well, your father should be paying half of it." And so, <sighs> so I didn't really, you know, there was all of this kind of like weird um, kind of stuff uh, going on, and. You know, it wasn't until I was around. So I'm 50 now. I'll be 51 in January. And hey, I'm 50 as well. We're the same age. <laughs> yeah. You go 50. Exactly. Um, 50 is the new 30. That's what I'm telling myself. I am, I'm feeling it too. I, I think I feel better at 50 than I did at 30, to be honest with you. Yes. So, yeah. It, but it wasn't until I think it was around 45 or something. And I was reflecting, it kind of like hit me that. My parents had no clue what they were doing when they had us. You know, I think my dad was 35. My mom was about 25. He was 10 years older than my mom. But I realized, like, they just did not have a clue what they were doing. And um, my poor sister and I, like most kids, you know, get caught in in their, them trying to figure it out. And that's what life is. You know, you kind of just reconcile, like, yeah, we're just figuring this stuff out. <laughs> so how, how is the relationship or are your parents still uh, with us or? Yeah. The relationship with my dad, honestly, is very strained. Um, I don't really have much of a relationship with him. Um, And my mother, my mother and I, no, we still have a good relationship. I don't see my parents um, that often because I'm in Costa Rica. And when I'm not in Costa Rica, I'm traveling around the world. And so I usually go home and visit them every so often not not enough according to them uh but enough according to me <laughs> no i hear you my my parents live in, in philadelphia and i i live in los angeles so i i why why leave uh, why would i leave la to go to philly 
You know what I'm saying? So uh, come here. <laughs> the weather's nice. In January, you can wear a T-shirt. Uh, it's not the same. But uh, I will be visiting for Thanksgiving. Uh, so they'll be happy. Um, so in your life, I mean, a lot of stress, a lot of things were going on, obviously, and that reflects in your body and all that. How did you get into fitness in general? How were you like looking out for yourself? That's a loaded question. I mean, I've always, I think I've always been fascinated by the body and by um, taking care of myself. Uh, I went to an all boys boarding school and at that boarding school, which was located in Alberta, Canada, um, it was a very outdoors kind of oriented school. So we did things like three week canoe trips in these, you know, 20, six foot Voyager canoes, um, you know, like where you could fit eight people per canoe. Um, we did, you know, hiking trips for one week up in the Rocky mountains. We did dog sledding, um, snowshoeing. We would do 50 mile snowshoe races. So, um, and then of course running and, and I was football and soccer and, and all of it. And so I was always very active and I was also very interested in always taking care of myself Somehow, somewhere, I got really obsessed with, you know, with this idea that, and it happened young. When I say young, I mean 16, 17, 18 years old. It happened young. And I realized, probably watching my grandparents, who were relatively young, um, that seeing how old they were, and I realized I never wanted to be like that. I always wanted to use my body um, as much as I could for as long as I could. Yeah. There was a gentleman in my retreat who's 70 years old and he had that spring, you know, that spring in his step, which I was like, his name was Rafa. I was like, Rafa, I want to be like you in, in 20 years. And so I've always been sort of obsessed with that. And that's kind of what led me into yoga um, was thinking, believing that, that, you know, I needed to be flexible to maintain that agility, to maintain that sort of spring in my step, to maintain that health. So I've always been into health and fitness. So it's a it's a good segue because I, that's what I was going to jump into next is ask you about yoga, how you got involved in yoga. Because if you're an athlete, and, and nowadays yoga is like okay, every athlete does yoga. But if you're if you're doing sports, yoga wasn't. It was for you know. I live in LA, so it's different now, but I'm going with my Philly <laughs> brain. Yoga's for the, the ladies to go out and do that, or you know, some other people. It's not for the guys who are pumping iron in the gym. They don't do yoga uh, and all that stuff. So how did you kind of make that uh, transition or segue? How was it introduced to you? Well, it was sort of right around the age of 18. And, um, and like I said, I was just starting to put that piece of the puzzle together, watching older people and realizing you know, what separated old people who were young acting from old people who are really old in their bodies and, and hunched over is they had that mobility. And I realized like, oh, I need to stretch. That was just sort of the, you know, natural conclusion. And then I started stretching and well, doing yoga. And that was when I started to notice my body started to have aches and pains. Uh, and, and, and that was, you know, a continuous cycle because as I had more pain, I would start to stretch more and then I would get more pain. So then I would just do more yoga. And my teachers would always say like, oh, you've got a pain in your shoulder. We need to uh, stretch it out. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of comment on something that you said is that a lot of guys that are doing yoga, you know, they're working out and they look at the yoga for the ladies. But a lot of people I've, I'm finding are starting to have that mentality of like, you know, I go to the gym to do my weights, I go to yoga to stretch, and, you know, then I'm going to join some sort of uh, running club or something to get my cardio in. So it's a very compartmentalized, you know, idea of, of how we kind of address our body. And I, I did, I had that too for a long time that I would go to the gym, work out, and then go to my yoga class once or twice a week to uh, stretch it out. Yeah. I mean, I was saying it in, in general based sure. on feedback, but that's exactly what I did. Like I did yoga for 10 years up until uh, COVID. 
And uh, then I tried to take classes online and I didn't feel the same. Like there was no connection to the energy of the teacher. Like being in a class uh, connected much more to me. Uh, trying to do it by myself wasn't really the same thing. But he brought up a couple, and I did the same way. I would go to the gym. I have my my classes are all on my calendar. So, you know, three days a week I do yoga, two days a week I'll do this, and then I'll hike and all that stuff. Same exact way that you're you're saying. And I also had some feelings of pain, discomfort, and did the same thing. And I talked to my, you know, my my yogi, my yoga instructor, and it would be the same way. Let's stretch it out, breathe into it. I've heard this. You know, a thousand times, just breathe into it. Well, I'm breathing into it. And you know what happened? I got a tear in my rotator cuff. So uh, I bre- you can breathe into it in, you know, all, all you can, but it's not going to heal my tear. Maybe it'll heal faster, but it, that, that's what was happening to me. I was actually injuring myself, even though I, was, I thought I was doing everything properly. So, I, I, so when I started reading your, your bio and your profile and all that stuff, there were so much similarities and, you know, looking at the, the first book, your autobiography, the uh, naked, uh, what was it? Naked Yogi? Autobiography of a naked yogi. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I was going to make a whole bunch of jokes about naked yogi. Or was it, was it, maybe I was doing it wrong. I was, I had clothes on. So maybe I should have sure. been doing it a different way. <laughs> but, but that's exactly what. too many clothes on. <laughs> I know, I know. Right. So I, I think. But what you were you were giving this example, and I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly what was happening with me, and I thought maybe I'm doing it incorrectly. So maybe there's a different way, or maybe just a style of yoga. Should I be doing vinyasa flow? Should I be doing something else? It's confusing. How do you know what's right uh, for you? What do you do? And is there a way to do it correctly? Yeah, you're asking me if there's a way to do it correctly. Um, well, I'm, I'm asking you more. I was just kind of throwing a question. I'm asking you more about your journey of you did this, you felt yeah. pain, and then you had a transition. And was there a certain style of, of yoga that you were doing? And then you discovered other ways to be able to care for your body. Yeah, I mean, I've had a long, I mean, I started yoga when I was about 18. So now that's like almost 33 years um, so my journey to yoga has been all over the map and I is, is critical or, or as judgmental as I might sound towards some, you know, sections of yoga. I'm really not, it might come across like I'm a judgmental asshole, but I'm really <laughs> not. I, I'm, cause I'm, I've been, I've been in all of those different stages, um, and so when I started out, you know, I was 18, 19, 20, 22, and I had like lots of energy and, you know, I, I deal with my own inner ADD, you know, I'm all over the place. And just as a side note, like talking about ADD, like that was one of the things that actually started to harness my energy and help me to focus really powerfully for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. So, and, and part of that kind of practice back then was more physical. It was more... Uh, as you use the word vinyasa oriented. And that's kind of what really turned me on to yoga because it was like, you know, sitting in a static pose on the floor, trying to touch my toes. That's the definition of hell. Well, for the, for my, you know, 22 year old self. So I, but all of that kind of stuff, eventually it just started to have an impact um, biomechanically on my body. And when I was in my early thirties, late twenties, I met my teacher who I call my teacher, uh, my first teacher, my first real teacher, Rod. And I realized like, for me, I was treating my yoga practice more for the physical and, and starting to identify, like I was really in pain at that point. Can you imagine being 29 years old and in, in pain because you're you know, overstretching so many things. And one of the, one of the issues that I had was this searing neck pain that sent this pain down my arm into my fingers. And I didn't realize at the time, but I was starting to develop nerve damage from too many chaturangas and Mm. too many, like for your listeners listening that don't know what that is, it's like lower plank. And, um, and all of these kind of jumps that you do these kind of acrobatic, you know, kind of postures. And so I started to shift my yoga practice, 
but it was still stretching. And um, so as I shifted it, I would start to feel a little bit better, but then it would get worse. And then I would feel a little bit better and it would get worse until one day I ended up in the surgeon's office who wanted to do a spinal fusion on my lower back. And, um, and I didn't do it, but he wanted to do it. And, and that made me really ask what is going on. And then that has led me to other things. So the journey for me to get here is always kind of ebbed and flowed. And I've tried and experimented with so many different things. Um, but one of the things I found is just the stretching just constantly made it worse. Mm. Yeah. It's, I mean, just to equate my own journey in, uh, in physical, uh, fitness and, and in yoga, I, I, so I had, a uh, an auto accident many, many years ago. Mm. I was in a, and, uh, I hurt my back. I, I broke my leg and all this other stuff and I healed and every once in a while, I would bend down to get something and I'd have, oh, my back and that's it. And I'd be out. And it started happening a lot when we, I remember we were going on vacation or something like that or taking a holiday or, and my back would go out. So I decided to go to get a a chiropractic adjustment and I went to get a chiropractic adjustment and they, they, you know, manipulated my spine, all that stuff. I went back home. I never forget. I went to. I was making something in the oven. I bent down to get it, and I got this pain. And it. And I was it. And I just could not, couldn't stand up straight. And I had to drive somewhere, so I couldn't even get in the car. It was sideways, and I was laying in pain, kind of. Uh, and I was listening to uh, Howard Stern at the time on the radio, and he was talking to somebody in his studio about you know, uh, this other, whatever celebrity had back pain and he was describing the same thing that I was going through and, you know, getting an epidural and I was scheduling an epidural for myself. And he said, like, Hey, did you, uh, there was a guy that I went to who healed me. Uh, and his name was uh, Dr. John Sarno. And he was talking about the mind body connection, all that stuff. So I read the book, I think it's called, the first one's called healing back pain. And then it was, I think the mind body uh, connection. I read it and I was like, wait a second, it has a lot to do with stress and where our cortisol levels are secreted and where our immune system over responds to that. So I started really, and that's what actually got me into yoga because in doing that, I started reading a lot about ways to be able to get out of my head and in my body. Yeah, Actually doing yoga injured me as well, but maybe, like I said, I probably wasn't doing some certain things correctly, but it allowed me to feel that something was coming on. And a lot of times when I was going on, on holiday, I was stressing about the experience. So I pick up the first suitcase out and I'm like, oh, and then the first two days or three days, I'm laid out. Luckily, I was on the beach. I didn't have to work, but still, that's not a good way to enjoy your, your vacation, right? So so I guess, I guess long-winded way of saying it and using myself as an example, did you ever think about that this also could be associated with where you hold your levels of stress and anxiety and th- as well? Well, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. Um, so, but what, a, what I discovered in my own sort of journey, which led me to studying muscle activation technique with Greg Roscoff, um, who, you know, I kind of count as one of my teachers now, and he started muscle activation technique, but it's got nothing to do necessarily with the muscle per se. It's more about, as you just said, this kind of brain to muscle connection. Now I just want to differentiate. Like there's, I think that what you, when you said like you did yoga and it helped put you in your body and you got more awareness. That's like one of the great things about yoga is, is that we are developing that mind body connection like that. There's a conscious awareness, but when we're talking about this kind of brain to muscle connection, it's happening at a neuromuscular level. So just because you can wish a muscle to become stronger, doesn't mean it's going to become stronger. Cause a lot of, I hear a lot of yoga teachers say that basically. Hmm. And so that's kind of like not in reality. Um, So, but what you just mentioned, like being stressed. So Greg always says that muscle dysfunction happens 
because of stress, trauma, and overuse. Well, one of the things that we know about stress is stress creates inflammation, and it's that inflammation that starts to get you know the mess up the messaging system between the brain and the muscle. So brain is sending muscle like these, you know, these messages, but because of the inflammation, it just gets stopped for lack of better words. So what we're trying to do is to build that connection by doing, introducing, you know, more kind of muscle activation practices um, in, in the yoga classes that we do so that way that the brain knows where the muscles are. We create a greater sense of, of accountability, if you will. So when you go into a pose, when you go into a forward fold, there's accountability in, in the stability of the action that you're doing. And what I mean by that is that the muscles, so when you fold forward, you know, all of your abdominal muscles for, you know, simplicity should be shortening. If they're not shortening, then there's no stability in the back. And so when you mm-hmm. bent over to pick up, you know, the thing or open the oven, you know, you bent over, these muscles weren't shortening properly. Um, and then you don't have stability and your back goes out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. Uh, in So l- let me just kind of go back because I, I think I skipped over a very important segue. So you had this back uh, fusion, you know, uh, that was, that was, I guess, uh, offered to you, which you refused to do. And then, uh, and this was, and then you discovered that maybe it's the yoga that you were doing that was taking a toll on your body. So how did you, how did you make that segue and what modifications did you have to make? So in my friend, Eric Stiebel, who's by the way, based in LA. So if you ever want a guy, I've got the best guy in the world. Yes, please. I'd love to. In LA. Um, Eric, so, but at the time when I was seeing Eric, he was actually in New York. And I flew from Costa Rica to New York and I spent eight days with him and saw him over those days. And during those eight days, he really started to teach me a lot about my body and using the MAT, the muscle activation technique methodology. And so in yoga classes, everywhere, pretty much. One of the adjustments that a lot of yoga teachers do is when you're in Shavasana. And what they do is they lift your legs up and sometimes swing the feet side to side. And to be quite honest with you, it's one of my favorite things to have done on me. It feels really nice in the lower back. You just kind of like let go and melt. But in the in the MAT methodology, one of the things that they do to is kind of a systemology to get a muscle stronger. They shut it down. They get it working. They shut it down. They get it working. They shut it down. Well, the way that you shut down the hip flexors, which is, you know, all the muscles that lift the leg up, um, you know, lift the leg up is they lift the leg and shake it a little side to side and then put it back down. And when he did that, he retested the muscle. So he shut the muscle down after it was strong, he lifted the leg up, shook it side to side, retested it, and it tested weak. Hmm. And I was like, I'm doing this to all my students. He goes, well, that's what happens when you apply a passive force to a muscle. Well, that's what we're doing in yoga. It's a lot of passive movement. You know, if you stand and fold forward and touch your toes or grab them and pull your chest to your thighs, it's a passive movement. If you're lying on your back, you bring your leg up and you grab that leg and pull it towards you. It's a passive movement. And, and so I, ever since then, I, well, shortly after that, I started studying muscle activation technique. I made the decision, like, I have got to understand this and see how can I bring this into the yoga world. And so I d- made the decision to start doing it. But w- once I got that knowledge, I started conducting my own experiments, like, you know, what would happen if you put somebody in child's pose? One of the most, you know, infamous postures in in yoga is child's pose. Well, child's pose is actually my number one pose to avoid now, just because of how much it does to inhibit muscular function at the neuromuscular level. And what that means is like when you want the muscles to engage, 
and engage on command. So Greg always uses this terminology, contract and contract on demand. They don't work. Mm. All the hip flexors, all the, all the abdominal muscles, the trunk flexors, the back muscles, the back extensors, the, the uh, glutes, everything shuts down when you hold child's pose more than 20, 30 seconds. And that was kind of like a light bulb moment to go, if I'm not teaching stretching, how am I going to teach yoga? And that was the question that kind of led me into this journey. So, so what would be the alternative? And by the way, it's making sense to me because a lot of times and I've been in some yoga classes where you're in child's pose and, and the, uh, the yogi, the, the teacher mm-hmm. is like, try to, you know, lower your back to your, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to your feet and, uh, uh, to the heels of your feet and like this doesn't feel right you know i'm trying to stretch it down but it doesn't feel right but i'm not an expert you're the expert i'm just following instructions uh which probably you should listen to your own body uh everybody out there just listen to your body and they do tell you that but they still on the second hand hey push yourself a little bit more so what would be an alternative uh, to child's pose that you, you prefer? Well, I mean, there's two. Um, one of my favorite ones is a pose called Makrasana or crocodile pose, which is very simply when you lie on your stomach and then you put your hands on top of each other and put your forehead on the back of your hand. And I like that pose because it keeps the spine in a neutral extension. It keeps the lower back in extension. It's not in a flexion, which is why a lot of people are dealing with back pain because of herniated discs. So if you have a herniated disc, child's pose is like, for that reason alone, is the number one reason why you shouldn't do it. But that pose is just so great. And just as a kind of like side note, you know, crocodile pose is so great for diaphragmatic breathing. It's one of the few poses, like better than even lying on your back, that really encourages this kind of expansive um, breathing. And during COVID, when patients were in the hospital at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the words that we started to hear, you know, out, out in the world was this word called proning. And, um, and what the doctors discovered was that actually putting patients onto their belly and having them breathe that way saved people's lives. Hmm. And it's because of this natural inclination to breathe more diaphragmatically, um, so that's like the number one pose. Another pose would be just to come and sit, you know, just sit and just be still. Um, another pose would be Shavasana. Um, so those are the kind of like top three that I would suggest if you must, you know, uh, take a break. So what initially inspired you to write your autobiography? Um <laughs> so that autobiography I started, I think it was like around 2006 and it took me about eight years to write it. Um, so it wasn't, it was a long process. I, um, I started to write it in a series of blog posts. So I remember my, one of my managers at the time, um, was saying to me like, Aaron, if you start writing blog posts, you know, maybe one day we'll put this together. I didn't write enough blog posts, (laughs) but I felt like I had a story to tell. Um, I've lived kind of an interesting life and um, I wanted to write like a chicken soup for the soul kind of book. Like I wanted to take some lessons that I really believed in. Like one of the stories I talk about is the importance of teachers. And so I talk a lot about my teachers and the lessons that they gave to me. Uh, And I wanted to kind of just, put it down and, and, and offer that, you know, to people who are looking for some inspiration and kind of a fun story. My story is kind of fun and interesting and also wild and takes some crazy U-turns. <laughs> so, well, so g- give me, uh, and by the way, I can relate to everything you're saying, because I wrote my book and it, it took me years. I didn't really I, it's not really an autobiography. It's my book is called Making Cannabis Personal. So it's about my experience. But it part the first part of it is me growing up and my experiences and and things of that nature. And for me, it was very very difficult because I have ADD, like uh, some of we share in common. So to sit down and focus was just a process of writing, and little snippets would be enough. 
But then sitting down and writing a whole book was just overwhelming. And chunking into small pieces, that would let me to succeed and in, 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 uh, having somebody to actually write it for me while I was recording everything. That was extremely helpful, but it, it was a, a very, very long process. So give us a, a fun story from, from the first book. <laughs> um, well, oh my goddess. Um, I, there's a whole bunch of stories, but you know what? So you were in Amsterdam and you were traveling and then you stopped by a coffee shop and then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I never, I, there's a few specific stories I got into, but um, what the book kind of like centers around a pivotal moment for me uh, when I was 35. And that was one of the inspirations for me wanting to write this book because what happened was I ended up in the Himalayan mountains. Um, I actually led led a lot of yoga groups to the Himalayas, and I ended up in the Himalayan mountains. Mm-hmm. And it was the very last day of the trip, and we were coming down uh, the mountain, and a boulder, or this glacier actually, and a boulder about twice the size of a uh, bowling ball came down and hit my leg um, and broke it. I mean, it broke the femur like... Um, thank God it wasn't a compound fracture, like meaning it didn't break the skin, but it, it was like a clean break. And then the bone was like that, you know, I didn't know it at the time. Of course, I just knew that I was in a lot of pain and, um, and then, you know, then it took about 20. So we were 27 kilometers away from where the cars were 27 kilometers. So I had to be carried down. And once we got down there, um, somebody had gone ahead and managed to get an ambulance, which looked like something that came out of the Flintstones movie. Uh, And then we got (laughs) into that. uh, Well, I did with one of my students who took care of me. And then we like the guy raced like a bat out of hell (laughs) down this mountain (laughs) in the Himalayan mountains. And the car was going like this. There was no strap over me. Um, And we drove for about three hours and it was like one of the most painful experiences of my life because I kept going like this with a leg that was fractured and we hit a landslide. Um, So we were stopped Uh, because of a landslide. So then we were stuck there for 12 hours. And um, and so it took really three and a half days for me from the time I broke my leg to the time I actually had the surgery, um, three and a half days in that experience taught me a lot about myself, a lot about the power of will, uh, about surrender, about gratitude, you know, just mm. all of these things that I had been learning um, as a student of yoga. And I felt like it all sort of kind of came together at that moment. And that's where I really cultivated a lot of faith as well. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, did, they, did they give you any yak tea? A yak butter um, tea. In, in uh, India, you actually don't see yak butter tea. It's actually more. Oh, that's in, only Nepal? In, in uh, uh, Tibet okay. and probably yeah, Nepal. In Tibet. Yeah. Nepal. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, no. But for I, the yeah, record, I, I have yeah, had yak butter tea and it's, it was the most horrible thing I ever took in. <laughs> was it? That's what I wanted to ask because uh, I I know like people like Dave Asprey, you know, the, uh, the Bulletproof Coffee, like he. He's like, that's how I came up with Bulletproof Coffee because I was uh, climbing and the, and then uh, had, yeah, I tea. love Bulletproof yeah, yeah, Coffee, tea. though. I love it. I usually use <laughs> um, coconut, but uh, I don't really use um, butter tea. No, not not a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. not, not, my, not my thing either. Not my thing either. So, um, so uh, in, in – Oh, and okay. I have another I have a couple of questions about – Yeah, yeah. So this is actually just yeah, kind of – it just downloaded – it just reminded me because you talked about the butter tea. So I went in this big pilgrimage um, 2005 and I call it a pilgrimage because we have um, what we sometimes refer to in our tradition as our celestial home, which is located actually in Tibet in Mount Kailash. And I really thought I really want to go to our celestial home of our tradition. So I went to Mount Kailash and I was very, very, very fortunate because I had um a driver, a guide, and a cook. And all three of them took care of me for, you know, three weeks. But we we stopped. My guide said to me one day, it was so funny. He says, do you mind if we go to my parents 
And um, for lunch, and it's not so far from here, of course, you know, not so far meant two hours, (laughs) (laughs) which is like four hours total, right? But so we stop at the town that's close by and he says, I need to go get meat. And he comes back with this carved um, goat around his shoulders. And I was like, I I just thought it was so funny. So then we got there and um, it was really wild because it was like they had this um, barnyard and above the barnyard was this house. And so we had to go through like this dark, you know, place where the, all of the animals were kept. And then we went upstairs and then he brought the meat and the family, we cooked the meat and, and ate it. But I had to go outside to relieve myself at one point. And so I went outside and um, all these kids started following me. When I say kids, I mean like six, seven-year-old, five-year-olds, four-year-olds. Mm. They all followed me. And I was trying to find like a place to kind of like turn so I could you know, urinate. And well, then they, then they saw me. And of course, you know, I'm a little bit hairy and they were just pointing at me because, you know, I guess the Nepalese or the Tibetans are, are more smooth down there. And one of the kids like got so excited, he went running up because I guess his friends told, you know, dared him and tried to touch me. And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> What are you doing? But it was like, it made me, it was so cute because it was like, you know, I'm trying to be, you know, proper and like turning and they just wanted to see all everything. And I thought, oh my God, where have I walked into? And it's a different culture. It's that's just it. It was just such an awakening moment to, you know, different culture and appreciating like, different perspectives and what I'm ashamed of it, but they're, they're not ashamed. of. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you learn so much with travel. They, 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 they definitely talk about like, you can learn whatever you want in school, yeah. but travel is where you really, really learn about the world. Uh, no matter what history book you read and all that stuff. So it makes total sense. It, you reminded me of like when I was in Jamaica, so I haven't eaten meat probably in about 13 years, give or take. Uh, I, I eat fish though, but when I was in Jamaica, there was, uh, I was hanging out with these, uh, Rastas and, uh, they were showing me these, uh, yeah, we were going through the fields and sampling their cannabis and which was fantastic. But, uh, there's these huge houses, I guess there were like old sugar plantations that were left behind and they took over these places. You know, they have electricity that they're stealing and all that stuff. And there's families living in, but everybody has a goat. And there are goats tied to the front. And I, and I was asking the guy, what's, what's the deal with the goats? Like, that's our lawnmower. <laughs> they, they actually take care of, they eat. And then, and then at some point, uh, we have uh, goats too. <laughs> and then there's a new goat. So it's a dual purpose uh, goat. Like, oh, I, that's, that's one thing I did not share with them is uh, the goats too. I didn't have any, because I haven't eaten meat, but could be could be interesting. So um, I wanted to ask you about, just general health and wellness, physical body, mind, we, you know, meditation, all that stuff. Actually, maybe, you know, this, I read somewhere that yoga actually started as a monks were meditating. And in order for them to start moving their body so they don't just sit there in one place, they started seeing animals, uh, you know, stretch or do these things. So they started writing these down and created these poses uh, in between their meditations I don't know if that's true or not, but that's where I read. Nice story. Yeah, we started. <laughs> it sounds it sounds right good to me. I'm like, oh, downward facing dog. They must have seen a dog do that or something. But uh, overall, uh, what plant medicine? How you feel about that? And also nutrition, like feeding your body. You know, exercise is one thing. Meditation, feeding your mind is another thing. But how do you feed with nutrients and also using Costa Rica? I mean, what an amazing place for plant medicine as a whole. So I want to kind of get your thoughts on on both nutrition, feeding your body, and also plant medicine. What your thoughts are on that? I mean, well, one of the things you mentioned is like you know the the ancient yogis. I don't know how old asana is like there's, you know, we, we see pictures of people sitting in meditation, like poses cross-legged or, or Lotus pose. So we know like there was this correlation at some point, um, you know, many thousands of years ago, there's, there's artifacts that date back 
you know, 15,000 years of people sitting in, in lotus pose. So there's this idea, this connection, like the body, um, we can start to affect energy in the body and probably around, uh, you know, three, four, five, six hundred AD. Um, there's this cult that comes up called the Noth cult, and the Noth cult were very dedicated to kind of revealing the mysteries of how to penetrate consciousness within the body. And so, there, you know, the living evidence of that is a book called the Hatha Yoga Pratipika. And which is sort of, you know, the Bible of yoga asana, but also breathing mudras and that sort of thing. And it's actually a lot of people aren't aware of this fact, but it's a very tantric uh, manual in the sense that if we start to move the body a certain way, we start to affect the energy, the pranic life force of the body. So it starts to move in a certain um, way. And one of those ways, of course, is the yogis were always fascinated with how do we move energy up the spine? How do we awaken that dormant, those dormant forces? And so there is a whole, you know, study of that. So when we talk about schools of yoga, you know, you ask people like, what kind of yoga do you practice? Well, you know, I practice downward dog yoga at my, my you know, studio <laughs> or, you know, lay up yoga and, you know, whatever. And, but really when we, when in the tradition, the Hatha yoga is all of the, is, is the umbrella for all of these kind of practices. They all come from uh, Hatha yoga. And so we're kind of like looking at how do we start to transform the body mm. using these different postures. Um, so that was just one thing that you had mentioned about where did they come from? And, you know, in tr traditional or classical yoga, Patanjali was really saying, like, you know, talking about how to attain liberation through the mind. Um, but the Hatha yogis, you know, were like, that's too long of a practice. You know, it's too long. Let's go into it through the body and try to awaken consciousness that way and commune with the divine through the body. Um, my thoughts about uh, plant medicine, to be honest with you, I haven't used plant medicine that much. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of information or or people in the sort of yoga world that do it. What I've been told by my teacher, uh, Pandaji Knowledge, the yogis actually closed the knowledge on plant medicine. So there used to be like a lot of practices around uh, different kinds of plant medicine, but they actually closed the knowledge on that about a thousand years ago. There was was like that's it on that knowledge. So there's very few, if any, kind of yoga people that is associated with a tradition on it. So I was never really introduced to it. Um, to be honest with you, it wasn't until about two years ago, um, I started, remember I told you about the disc herniation in my back. Right. So one of the things that I needed to do, you know, I do a lot of my muscle activations, which helps, but I've had to also deal with this herniation, this disc herniation. And one of the only things that helps is marijuana, um, THC and a CBD combination. Um, I have a guy that makes an oil blend for me and it just helps so much. So I don't have to take painkillers. And whereas if I do take painkillers, um, it doesn't really do much for the nerve pain that this kind of marijuana or THC CBD combination is the only thing that helps. Um, get rid of nerve pain. So I've been starting to embrace that. And um, here at Blue Osa, we've been actually looking for somebody to start having an alliance with that can lead sort of more plant medicine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not, this is my show. I'm not doing a commercial for what we do, but that's, I've been doing this for 27 yeah. years. So uh, we have a, a DNA company that uses DNA to guide you to your personalized experience with phytocannabinoids. So CBD, THC, the essential oils that come with it. So and that's my go-to medicine too. And that's the only thing they alleviated. Uh, you know, opioids and all these other things, they're temporary fixes. All they do is block, like, uh, you know, you, the, the feeling as an analgesic, but they're not really doing anything to heal the inflammation. As soon as that goes away, it's the inflammation that's causing the pain. Yeah. So, you know, cannabinoids can actually address that. So, yeah, thank you for uh, for saying that. Um 
what inspired you to write? Uh, what's the name of your new book? I just want to make sure I get it right. Um, so my new book is called Stop Stretching. <laughs> so that's kind of the first instruction, Stop Stretching. And then it's called A New Yogic Approach to Master Your Body and Live Pain-Free. So part of what my takeaway from what I learned from Greg um, with muscle activation technique, a lot of what Greg, a lot of what they teach in that sort of area, or at least what I learned, is stuff that you kind of have to do one-on-one with people. So I was kind of like really curious, well, if what kind of exercises would we need to do? How do we start to use this and 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 do um, these kind of postures in, in the yoga world? And so one of the number one things, of course, stop stretching, stop using uh, gravity to help you go deeper. Let's eliminate the word stretching and flexibility altogether. Not interested in how much flexibility you have, because as Greg would say, flexibility always leads to instability, which always leads to injury. So a lot of what I teach now is like, let's go into it in a more dynamic way. So let me give you an example of that. So I'll give you two actually. So if you think about like, um, um, it's the Sanskrit word is supta padangustasana. So if you're lying on your back and you bring one leg up to the sky, normally what the teacher would do is have you have a strap so you could strap the foot and pull the leg closer to you or grab the leg and pull the leg closer to you. But from our perspective, we want to eliminate that altogether because once we do that, we, we bypass the body's muscle function, which is the quads engaging. And then we're working on trying to stretch just the hamstring. And so there's no accountability afterwards. Like if you come out of that and I test the quads or the hamstring for that matter, they're both going to test weak. So what we would say is lift the leg up as high as you can, hold it there for, you know, 10 seconds or something, and then just repeat that a few times. Another example would be like triangle pose. So in triangle pose, very popular pose in the yoga world, mm. um, you you know, and, and the side that you're bending into in triangle pose, they say stretch that side of your body. Um, what I try to focus on is like, well, no, what we need to focus on is engaging the side of the body that we're coming into. So whenever I teach triangle pose now, I always tell people, um, cross your arms And if I'm coming in on the right, uh, well, my left side, I would say, bring the left shoulder to your left hip bone and feel those muscles squeeze. And then I would have them come back up and then come back over and squeeze them. Don't worry about this side. Don't worry about the tightness. Just let's get into this muscle. So what we're really working on is this idea of opposite muscles. If this muscle is engaging, this muscle is automatically going to start to relax. In the case of tight hamstrings, one of the reasons why the hamstrings are tight is because the quads aren't contracting properly. Mm. So if you want the hamstrings to relax, if you're a person suffering from tight hamstrings, get those quads working properly. Um, If you do that, the hamstrings will be loose all day long. So I have a selfish question for you because the, the whole neck, the whole neck thing that you talked about, uh, where, where it actually goes down your side. So I, I, uh, tore my rotator cuff slightly while we're lifting yeah. weights and, uh, which I don't even know why I did, but I, anyway, getting older. So I thought maybe, you know, do some weights. And what happened was, so I was getting my acupuncture, the acupuncture said, man, you're compensating for you you have so much tension here and i can feel it like even when i I can feel it all the way yeah all all the way down my trapezius down my scapula all in that area so is there an exercise that you were doing before or that i I can do maybe to help me release some of this uh tension yeah i mean absolutely i i mean the the, here's the thing you should say buy. You should say buy the book, and then you'll know. <laughs> buy the book. I was setting you up for that. Well, there's a whole section on shoulders and what to do See? in the book. Um, in, in yeah, there's a whole section on shoulders and physical what I muscle activation practices that you can do certain practices. But you know, one of the things that I just as a side note, like 
so many people. So we talk about synergistic muscles, opposite muscles. So with the upper traps here, that the opposite muscle, a lot of people don't know this, but one of the opposite, there's a few opposites, but one of the opposites is your lower traps. Mm-hmm. And so with a lot of people, their trapezius muscles are dead, dead in the water. And um, so you really want to do start incorporating practices. And here's the other thing, like you do bodybuilding, weightlifting. A lot of people are going into their weightlifting with muscles that aren't working well or that are already weak. And I don't say weak like, oh, you can't lift 100 pounds or something. I just mean weak in terms of they're not able to contract and contract on a, on demand. So weak from a neuromuscular standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if those muscles aren't working, so your traps, if your upper traps aren't working, if your lower traps aren't working, guess what happens? You, your low, your rotator cuff starts to compensate to maintain stability of this joint. Um, so my favorite three muscles to work on, I have three muscles that I always advocate people to get strong trapezius, pectorals, most people's pecs aren't also working. So if you're doing bench pressing and these these guys are not firing properly, again, you're going to be relying on those rotator cuffs and other small muscles to lift that 100, 150 pound uh, um, bench press. So we definitely want to get- So I should be, I should be maybe doing more pull-ups than- Push no, no. Um, I would say do well. That's not muscle. That's not necessarily muscle activation. And you're giving a load to your muscles that they may not be near muscularly re- ready to have because of stress, trauma, and overuse. So you want to make sure that those muscles are activated. The simple one. I'll give you this one. Then you have to buy the book. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> but one, well, it's a teaser, this, right? We're just we're just giving a teaser, absolutely. right? <laughs> I listen. You can go on my YouTube channel. You can go on my online. I've got so there much go. stuff out there now, and and going to keep putting more stuff out. But if the simple one is, you come onto your stomach, and there's a little variation on this. But you know when you you have your hands down beside your waist and you come on your stomach, you lift your chest up as high as you can. So that's a form of locust pose. Then you bring your arms to 45 degrees and you try to lift your arms up with your chest. Not like this, not like that. 45 degrees, you have your thumbs going towards the ceiling and just do that. But if you want to do like a little experiment, you just kind of sit up straight or sit up erect Mm -hmm. and then bring the arms to 45 degrees. And have the arms straight and then have the thumbs pointing behind you. And now don't move your torso. This is why like on the floor is better because the torso will move a lot, but just keep the torso locked and then just keep the arms straight. So don't let the elbows bend, but just take the arms bones back. Do you feel that in your traps? Oh yeah. So hold that Uh for six seconds and then lower down. And then if you're going to do a muscle activation, one of the the rules is six seconds, six times. So you would do it again and repeat that. And then your traps, well, at least your lower ones would be ready to go. The, the middle traps are arms out to the sides, palms up. And again, don't move the chest. I just started to do that. Right. But then you would just bring the arms back and you can feel the middle traps engaged. You put the arms like level with the shoulders. Um, there you go. And then you can feel the middle traps engaged. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's great. It's just that's it. very, very that's simple. The, I'm going to do very, that. very, very simple stuff. Well, it makes total sense to me because I, and I, maybe I shouldn't mention who this uh, person is, but I used to go to this yoga class of a, a very well-known yogi in LA, and uh, he was uh, he was on power yoga, and I remember we would go to this class the day after new year's and it'd be a hundred people in this class. And he would be like, I guarantee you guys half the class is going to be gone in the first 30 minutes. It was like an hour and a half class. And, and it's, it's power. You could see they hold the poses longer and longer until everything is shaking and all that stuff. It's like, is this, is this good? I was not sure if this is it. This is good uh, to be able to, it's a attrition, right? Like, you guys survived. You you sure. win. So I was like, I'm staying till the end. But am I really getting the benefit from that? I, I wasn't sure. But 
very this well is, known. This is the thing, like, you know, a lot of people have a hard time grabbing these concepts, but it's really important for people to understand is like, there's a phone line between your brain and the muscle. And for most of us, we're walking around with that phone line disconnected from a lot of our muscles. And so the body can't rely like for glutes, for example, like if you, if you're doing like, you know, a lot of standing and you're doing lifting stuff and your glutes aren't active, aren't, aren't, aren't working because the brain isn't connected to those muscles. It's going to rely on other things, other muscle. And that's where that creates more stress and trauma in the body. Right. Totally makes sense. And I appreciate you helping me out. Um, all right. So I have a few questions I ask all my guests. Uh, one of them, you sort of answered about cannabis use. So I'm not going to, uh, unless there is a question, I'll ask you if you're willing to, uh, if you will to disclose, uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't really try cannabis until probably I was 26, 27. And, um, my friend, uh, had these cookies and, um, it's, it's always the cookies of the brownies that get you. So and I thought, well, you know, I tried like a quarter of it and I was like, are you kidding me? And so then I had another quarter and another quarter, another quarter. And I went down this hole for about a good 12, 24 hours. I was a wreck. Um, but that was my first experience. Um, I have uh, smoked a little bit, probably more in my early, uh, my late 20s, a little bit. And then I went to go work for Disney Cruise Lines for a hot moment. And they actually drug tested me. And that kind of you know, steered me away probably until just recently, until a couple of years ago. Got it. Um, and yeah. And I, and I told you my story. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's always fun with the edibles because I don't think people understand that when you eat cannabis THC, it converts to a complete different substance called 11 oxyhydroxide, yeah. which can be five to 50 times more powerful than THC. And when people don't know, they uh, can experience it for much longer period of time, especially if you're a slow metabolizer of THC. So that's, I've heard this story. Oh my God. Can I tell you a quick, funny story? So um, yeah, yeah. a year, year and a half ago, I was leading this yoga teacher training. And um, so I, my, I had this guy in Costa Rica, he's gringo uh, American, and he um, uh, grows his own stuff. Like it's all organic and everything. He's become, he's like a little bit of a chemist with this stuff as well. Um, but anyway, so he made these like, um, little chocolates with, with THC CBD in them. And so I actually ate one one day and my metabolism with this stuff seems to be pretty good, but I don't know what happened. Maybe it was the time, but I ate that thing. I woke up like the next morning, which was about 18 hours after I took it. And it was just starting to kick in and I had to go teach my class high. <laughs> it was, was I was like, Oh <laughs> my God, how am I going to get through this? Actually, it ended up being like a really great talk, but you know, <laughs> there you go. Well, we'll do, we'll do an endo DNA test for you. And we'll see how you metabolize and everything else. It's a, uh, it's uh, interesting to find out about yourself. Um, I'm a big music guy. So it's, I mean, if you can see behind me, I'm a big vinyl collector. Is there, do you remember the very first concert that you attended? Heart. Nice. Heart. I, I was my very first concert went with a friend of mine and we just, we were both serious heart fans. Now I'm, I'm 50, almost 51. So this was when I was 18 years old. So this is like 1990. Yeah. And, um, and heart, you know, and they were already getting old. The band was already getting old by that point too, but it was just so magical. Oh, oh that's great. Uh, what, what was the last concert you attended? Share. <laughs> in in no, Vegas? It was actually in Vancouver, Canada. Um, oh, okay. I just, Oh no, that's a lie. I was actually in Lyon in France and one of my favorite Canadian artists, Lorena McKenneth. Um, she's this amazing singer, sings Celtic kind of music and she's Canadian as well. But we, she performed in this sort of outdoor theater, um, like the ancient Greek 
theaters I'm talking about, Roman style theater. And like an amphitheater. Exactly. Like, I mean, talking like the whole, like the rocks where people were sitting like on the old stone benches and it was just my whole life. I've never seen anything like that. You know, it was just amazing. Well, I was going to ask you uh, if there's anything that you're listening to these days that you find interesting to recommend, but maybe. Lorena McKenna. She's <laughs> one of the world's best kept secrets for a lot of people who don't know her. Beautiful music. Very talented. All right. So final question. Uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> so when I, in, when I was like, I think four or five Star Wars came out. And like every other child on the planet, I was like, I need everything Star Wars. And my parents um, bought for me that Christmas, um, this kind of uh, duvet cover with like all the star, like a Star Wars kind of theme to it. So I would go to bed at night, just staring at that thing going, oh, I just want to jump into this world. <laughs> That's so cool. Star Wars theme room. Star Wars theme room, yes. Great. So, Aaron, where, where can people find out? Where can they get your books? Where can they get your content? Where they can get, find you on social media? Where can get, they get engaged with you, your your retreats, anything else? Let Pretty much if you Google um, or, or Facebook or Instagram, um, just search Yogi Aaron. But the links to everything is on my website, yogiaron.com. Um, and they can access my, you know, YouTube channel. I've got some free giveaways there. There's a free thing that they can sign up for and how to become pain-free. Uh, so there's a lot of content there that they can access and access my trainings or access me individually. So that's the best place to do it. Oh, great. I want to thank you so much. It's been so much fun. I appreciate you sharing with us. And uh, we will get this up uh, and link to all of your social media. When we're, when thank you so much, Glenn. Appreciate it. Thank us. you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.